Hey, I'm Alan McGuire. And I'm Sarah Griffin. And this is Juvenalia, a podcast where we talk to an interesting person about a bit of pop culture that was important to them when they were young. Our guest today is a singer-songwriter. Her album, Love and Rage, is out right now. It's Carsey Blanton. Welcome to the show. Hi, I'm the interesting person. Yeah, you are. <laughs> uh, you have an interesting topic, one I've never thought of. I've never actually listened to it before now, so it was very interesting. Please Ooh. introduce your thing to us. Exciting. Well, so I did a, a lot of thinking about which piece of pop culture to present because there's so many that are so important to so many. Mm. Um, and I decided on a Sheryl Crow album, Tuesday Night Music Club, which I believe was her debut album. I didn't, you you might have done more research than I because I thought mm. I would just stick with my memories of it. For oh, this, yeah. <laughs> for that's, this, that's what, that's what that's I'm here for. That's the most for. important. I'm, I'm here to fill in the gaps. Yeah. Oh, good, good. So yeah, it was. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was. Okay, great. Yeah. So, um, I believe I was maybe nine or 10 when it came out, but I have a very vivid memory of buying the cassette for my 11th birthday. I was given mm. some birthday money. I went to the record store and I bought like four cassettes with my own money. Very exciting. And then I, I took this one home and just wore it out. <laughs> Were you aware of her in any big way before or was it like the cover? Because it's a good cover. So it like, what attracted you? Well, if I remember correctly, uh, her song, All I Want to Do, was on the radio all the time. All mm. I want to do is have some fun, which is like very It was on the radio here all the time, too. It was everywhere. <laughs> yeah. It was everywhere, everywhere. I hadn't thought about it in so long. Yeah. And when I was listening back today, I was like, Whoa. Yeah, like, right? It's a, it's a real-time warp. It's a real-time. She <laughs> hasn't had her reemergence yet. Yeah, so, wow. you know, Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, and that song was very accessible to an 11 year old girl. Like, I, I feel like I listen to it still and I still think it's awesome. And I love, it's like a little perfect little candy pop gem. Um, but as an 11 year old, I was like, I really relate to this. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's how I started listening to it. It's listening back to it now. It's, I guess there was a lot of that kind of thing in the early nineties of like sping, sin, ugh, sing speaking, like mm. that really casual way like it's a really that whole album it kind of feels like it's just kind of flowing out of her it's a really yeah. casual easy kind of a thing sure um, and especially like the opening track is almost like a spoken word she's mm -hmm. like she was born in november 1963 it's like this <laughs> it's like a talking intro which i feel like has kind of fallen out of fashion but i still think it's cool mm. <laughs> yeah it's kind of it's not quite a country album but it's, i wouldn't say it's a pop album either it's really it's really its own thing yeah i think yeah. yeah yeah well you know she to me cheryl crow is in in the tradition of a lot of my favorite songwriters which is she sounds to me like she's always trying to write pop meaning she's she's the songs are very hook driven and she's always like going for the hook and trying to write something super catchy mm. um but she's also informed by like all of americana <laughs> mm. so like yeah, yeah. music and jazz and country and rock and roll and it's like all in there kind of tangled together um, and so some of the songs lean more country and there's one total jazz tune on there. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, it's like, it's a little bit of everything. And I think of that as like what popular song is from almost every era. It's like you take everything, everything that's happened so far in recent history in music and you kind of weave it together and then you try to make it catchy. <laughs> hmm. It's like, I always find, and I think this is true of this album, that the less you can tell what someone's influences are, it means they have, but the more influences you have, the harder it is to tell what they actually are. Yeah. Because it's so many, it's like little raindrops of everything you said are just one big, like, glass of the same person. Yeah. And I guess because she was like, a, like a, a session singer for like jingles, and then she was Michael Jackson's backup singer for two yeah. years. 
and then she... Hold on. She was Michael Jackson's backup singer yeah. for two years. On The Bachelor, yeah, yeah. start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a wild story, like... And then she goes and she just like hangs out in this Tuesday night music club with all these musicians. And it's you're getting this like super polished session musician with yeah. this like hangout vibe. Yeah. And it's mm. really special and cool. Totally. It's like a bunch of the best musicians ever, but they're just sort of shooting the shit and jamming. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and that doesn't go as well if the musicianship isn't as high, <laughs> if the mm. level's not as good. But yeah, that record has that sound to me as well, where it's sort of like feels thrown together. Although at the same time, like going back and listening to the the hit, All I Wanna Do, it's so, it's very heavily produced. Like there's really a lot of tracks on that song and mm. it gives you this feeling of like, oh, we're hanging out on the beach, clapping hands, there's percussion, it's like a party. But at the same time, like that's gotta be, there's gotta be 40 or 50 tracks on that. Yeah, <laughs> there's like the same, the same guitar line three times with three different yeah, guitars. And, yeah, exactly, yeah. 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 Which is another thing in the 90s, I mean, and still, uh, but I feel like the 90s was sort of the beginning of that style of production where like, mm. like in Nashville, it was very big, but in LA at the same time where it was like, hey, you can do like now that we understand what digital recording is, let's go ahead and put 50 tracks on, on this yeah. record and we can recut everything and we can like everyone can double that cool guitar line mm. or whatever. It's there's um, I've always found there's like a sheen on like 90s American music. And towards the late 80s, it gets quite unpleasant to my ear. But like back then, <laughs> and, like the and like the Annie DeFranco album, you also mentioned that you, yeah. in it when we were talking beforehand, it has that, it's this kind of polished crunchy almost. Yeah. You know, where you can hit it, you can hear the strings, but also there's like this, like, I don't know, like glass over it or something. It's like, yeah. it's a little bit put away. Yeah. You know, I'm going to like run my mouth on this and I might not know what I'm talking about, but I feel mm -hmm. like a lot of the, a lot of the sound we associate with different um, decades has to do with um, what the miking technology was at that time. So like what the latest mic ah. were and, and where they were placing them, what they thought sounded cool. Like, it, like any eighties record has like a particular drum sound. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I feel like it has more to do with like who the hip producers were and where they thought you were supposed to mic the drums and also what kind of mics they were using. So I feel like the nineties is when we suddenly got, um, this advance in miking technology where you could hear all this detail in people's singing in people's voices and in the guitars and everything and by the end of the 90s it was way overdone so it was like we took it too far and even yeah. like the early 2000s like a lot of pop records from that era just sound really like pointy and sparkly to me mm -hmm. like someone throwing glitter in your eyes yeah and it's the late 90s as well. So music was moving, moving like I feel like there's a sort of a late 90s, early noughties sound that like is really like um, it's unique, but it's not uh, it's not classic yet. Do you know, yeah. there's a you, you can tell that something about how this is made is changing very quickly. Right. And um, 1999 is a weird year for music, you know, across the board. Like it's a it's an odd one. Um, but it's incredible to really think about that, how technology intersects with people expressing themselves, you know, and like yeah. what that does to sound and quality. You know? Yeah, totally. I know. I wonder if this podcast, like in 10 years, if podcasts are going to be like, oh, everyone was using that one microphone that people used for podcasts at the time. We both have the exact <laughs> same microphone right now. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I have this really pretty one. That is like gorgeous. Ex yeah. Extra crispy. Well, you mentioned the Ani DeFranco record, and I just mm. wanted to go into that a bit, too, because I think yeah, yeah. So Tuesday at Music Club was 94, 95. Alan, do you know? 
93, yeah. 93. Fact, oh. Matt, dropping in, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I bought it in 96, so it had already been out for a little bit. Mm. Um, and uh, the Ani DeFranco record, Out of Range, had also come out, I don't know, 94, 95. So I bought them uh, the same time for my 11th birthday. And, mm. um, and yeah, that Out of Range is another one that sounds very... Uh, specifically mid-90s now, mm-hmm. <laughs> listing back. And yeah. a lot of it is like the treble, like there's a lot of treble in the guitars and in the vocals mm-hmm. and everything sounds real pokey. Um, but but as a writer, Ani DeFranco was another one of my big influences, um, although she's a lot less pop. So I feel like Sheryl Crow mm-hmm. is a pop writer still, like the whole time was just trying to write a hit and she got a bunch of them and she got a bunch of great records in the process. And Ani DeFranco is more like a folk outsider person as a writer i wasn't really familiar with her at all before i listened to it for this and there was uh one song i knew was um you had time is that the one yeah you got time because mm-hmm. uh do you know the, the writer nick hornby yes he has a book called 31 songs which is basically mm-hmm. him it's basically kind of this podcast in book form where he just picks 31 <sighs> songs that are important to him and writes about them yeah and he said that you've got time you've had time is like an amicable divorce song which is really rare in pop music yeah. that it's a ratio that breaks up but like it's okay that it's breaking up which is yeah. not it's not 11 year old material yeah. generally but like <laughs> what were you responding but, to in it well you know i'm i've always been a lyrics person and i remember mm. even at the time um really attaching to a lot of the lyrics both in the Cheryl crow record and in the that on defranco record and mm. that song still has a has a turn of phrase in it that's still one of my favorite lyrics ever which is you are a china shop and i am a bull you are really good food and I am full. Oh, wow. <laughs> Nick Hornby quotes the exact same line in the book. Yeah. That's so oh, weird. wow. It's like, Genius. Yeah. It's a beautiful metaphor. Like mm. even comparing those things to each other is beautiful and then having that be a breakup song. And it is, it's sort of like, hey, you know this isn't working out and here's the reasons. You're a china shop, I'm a bull. You're really good food, but I'm full. So it's sort of like, you didn't do anything wrong here. Mm. <laughs> this, is just, this is just how it's all shaken out. Yeah, and, and Cheryl Crow is much more of a pop lyricist. So Ani DeFranco, I feel like, comes from the folk tradition in that she's she's writing poetry, essentially, and putting mm-hmm. it to music. And Cheryl Crow is much more like, all I want to do is have some fun. Like, <laughs> the lyrics are good, they make sense, and they rhyme. But she's not trying to, like, plumb the depths of the human soul <laughs> so much. <laughs> I feel like it's about hitting that fine balance, right? Where you're a little bit all I want to do is have some fun also a little bit plumbing the depths of the human soul do you know and that's where the influence yeah. gathering bit comes from right where you need sure. you need the poetry and you need the sugar because like uh, like Alan was saying earlier like great work it, it has many many influences do you know what I mean or has a bunch of different raindrops yeah. going into or big songs um you can't really glean the full the full scope of influence because the creator of that work is so educated in what they you know, in in, in their, in, like, across the board, you know? Yeah, and, like, looking back, I mean, I can remember all the records I was buying around that time mm. and listening to, and, like, and they all were important, but also there's only a few that I still like listening to, and this is, that's one of the reasons I chose this one, because I still could just jam out to this record, and I think it sounds great. <laughs> it doesn't sound, mm. like, overly kitschy to me. <laughs> it does, it's really, for someone who's primarily known as, like, pop and, like, kind of I guess her big singles are all kind of like highway songs almost like every day is when you road and stuff yeah but like I listened to that album three times today and I enjoyed the hell out of it every single yeah. time I could like we're saying like she's not maybe as deep as Ani DeFranco but like 
if you were in the right mood and like the weather was just right, Run Baby Run could destroy you. I yeah. Say, you know? <laughs> <laughs> totally. And like strong enough. I mean, so I got it. I was 11 and then I was 13 when I started playing guitar and, and mm, strong enough too. was one yeah, of yeah. the first, first songs I ever learned to play. And yeah, I, yeah. I feel like that's probably true of many of the people in my generation, especially mm. women. <laughs> if you learn to play guitar in the mid nineties, you probably learn, gotta feel like hell tonight. Tears of rage, I cannot fight. Like, it's just like such a simple, beautiful melody and it's four chords and it's just like easy to just mm. nail it, you know? And I feel like, yeah, there's, there's certainly something about the depths of the human soul in that song, although it's a much more, you know, simple and direct phrasing. Mm. <laughs> Was that one of the albums that like made you want to play guitar? Because like for me, it was like the Benz and like oh, yeah. Oasis and stuff. But like, was I was the... just listening to the Benz. I put it oh, on yeah. my dog. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> calms her down. She's a rocker. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, um, certainly that record. Certainly Ana DeFranco. Um, there was like the mid '90s was like the I don't know how much you guys were hearing about this or if there even was a tour um, over there, but Lilith Fair was happening over here. Did you did you have that in Ireland? I, no, I don't think it came over here. No, I think it's yeah, yeah it's mostly people who didn't really break out over here. I think. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. So so Lilith Fair was a mid '90s um, festival, and it was on it was all women acts. Which is still like we should still do that. It would be great, but but at the time it was like, what? This is so crazy. Um, so it was like I'm sure Ani DeFranco played, Cheryl Crow played, uh, Sarah McLaughlin, um, Jewel. Jewel, yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so that was around the same that same age, um, and I was that same age, meaning. And I just followed all of them and tried to learn all of their songs. Like that, that was sort of my that my set of idols. All the women who were playing Lilith Fair. <laughs> what a lovely, what a lovely collection of of women musicians as well. Like Sarah McLaughlin, you don't really hear her throwing around a lot. You know what I mean over here? It's a lovely. No. That's a very warm, folky kind of vibe. It's, totally. It's really, yep. really different and really warm. Uh, yeah. That sounds like an amazing lineup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and I think part of the reason I still listen to Cheryl Crow and I sort of like I brought my I have a Cheryl Crow uh prayer candle that I made. Oh! <laughs> wow. I love her. I have a whole set of prayer candles. She's in the lineup. There's like six of them. <laughs> so she's still one of my favorite artists and I think the reason she's sort of I has I've stuck with her since the mid 90s is because she comes from this tradition of like um, like pop songwriters, like I was saying. So so her stuff really lasts. Like it feels, even though the production you can really identify with the 90s, her songs feel very timeless. Um, mm. And as do the later ones, like the self-titled album was the next one with, that makes you happy, can't be that bad. Like so many just like super classic uh, anthems. Oh, like instant standards, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, instant yeah. standards. Um, and so I feel like that's, although like Ani DeFranco was a huge influence on me, I don't return to her stuff in the same way because it just isn't, it doesn't have that timeless standard quality quite as much. Mm. Uh, so what kind of like 11 year old were you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good question. Um, I was still sweet at that time. I'm pretty sure <laughs> for a couple more years. Um, I hadn't entered my like punk rock, be mean to my parents phase. Um, so I think when I was 11, I would like read books a lot. I like to go out and run around in the woods. Um, I grew up on a farm, so you could go run in the woods. Um, 
so yeah, I was like reading books and, and listening to cassettes and running around in the woods. That pretty much was it with my dogs. Good, good point. <laughs> Your dog's like, you had dogs. Don't forget. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. How about, are you guys, can, can you talk about how old you are? Is that? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm 36. I'm 33. Okay. So I feel like you like, if you were 11 yeah. and I'm 99, we're probably around the same kind of bracket, right? Well, 96 is when I was 11. Ah, so yeah, but close. close, close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're all in the yeah, same so sort of millennial-ish bracket anyway. That's sort of. Yep. Yeah. I, I have a pop culture question for you guys. Um, how do I ask this? I feel like when in the phase when I was listening to this record, I was very into like mainstream pop music and what was on the radio. And then at some point I departed and became into alternative and would listen to weirder stuff and i wonder if that happened for you like was there a point when you were like this is too mainstream and i don't like it it's not cool enough <laughs> oh yeah like i got um the bends when i was like 12 um and then radiohead headline glastonbury in 97 it was on tv so i watched that and i was like ended up watching all of the glastonbury like coverage so seeing loads of bands and then because i got so obsessed with radiohead i would buy magazines that radiohead were in and then see loads of other bands that way and just fell down a rabbit hole just out of pop music for like yeah. years and years and years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Radiohead was the gateway drug. Oh, completely. Yeah. Yeah. Alan is like a true, yeah. true Radiohead stan, like lingering around Twitter with like Radiohead fan cans. Um, secret life. So, uh, I apologize if I'm slightly out of sync or out of distance because my internet is crunching really badly. Um, but my, uh, I, I didn't like pop. My, my deep confession of how profoundly uncool I am is that I didn't actually like pop music at all as a child or a teenager. Um, didn't listen to it. I, I returned to it later on. I had a Spice Girls tape. I had a few bits and pieces, but my day-to-day -day listening, my grandmother brought me up. So um, my day-to-day -day listening was all swing music and jazz music from like the yes. 1960s. I am a Burt Backrackhead nice yeah so oh, i love it it's it and i do i do i have kind of cribbed a fluency in britney and christina and i i was there obviously i heard the songs i experienced them but in my own time on my own disc man and my own walk man the tapes and things that i listened to were the soundtracks from musicals and various different andy williams and frank sinatra uh comp compilation tapes um, yes. because that was the house the music of the house that I was brought up in and uh, we didn't have MTV and I wouldn't have been allowed to watch it anyway very strict uh very strict parameters around what it was and wasn't allowed to watch it's my dog having a sing in the background um <laughs> so I came when I go back through the pop of that particular time I go back through a sort of a forbidden lens like those mm. are the songs that I heard on the radio those are the songs that my friends listened to um, mm. uh, but my own personal musical saga is a much, a one much older than me. It's the one that of the music that my grandmother listened to day in and day out, which is like Barbara Streisand, Liza Minnelli. Like when I used to sing, those were the voices that I would reach for hilariously. Yeah. <laughs> like, I love it. The neck of me, like a 12 year old girl singing like sad, uh, Barbara to herself, you know. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I wish I had a cooler answer to that, but it, it is, um, it's such a funny time, isn't it? When you don't have an open set of influences and your world is quite small, 
like you find meaning and reflection in whatever music and whatever art you have access to even if it's not the ones that are speaking directly to you yeah of course and I I relate although it was a little bit the other way around for me in that I was listening to pop music and then when I started playing guitar was around Mm. the same time there was a there was a um documentary series on jazz by Ken Burns that came out also in the mid 90s and I remember watching it with my mom and being like what is this like I sort of had this awakening around being 12 age 12 13 and my granddad uh, also was a really big jazz fan he's he had grown up in Chicago and you know in the 40s and 50s and so Real. he would like go see Sidney Bechet play every week <laughs> and stuff <laughs> So when he heard that I was getting interested in jazz, he sent me for my 13th birthday, like a big stack of his favorite jazz singers. So it was like Billie Holiday, Holiday. Nina Simone, Ray Charles, Sarah Vaughn, like Ella Fitzgerald. He was just like, you're going to love all these. And I, and I totally did. Um, But my parents didn't listen to jazz at all. So I remember at the time I was like, wow, this is like somehow illicit and cool. (laughs) Like kind of like what you're talking about. So much of your concept of what is normal and also what is edgy has to do with just what your parents liked or didn't like <laughs> as you oh were, yeah my parents hated jazz hated punk music no way I discover, oh like we every sunday morning after mass we used to go to this pub in Waterford called reginald's because my mother's friend's father was a jazz drummer and they would sit as far away from him as possible <laughs> still being polite i can feel I would, the like, interior my, of that pub alan like i can you feel. know it's <laughs> it's um i used to like find excuses to get as close to the drum kit as I could just mm. to hear the cymbals like vibrating through my like five-year-old body because of the they were just yeah. um <laughs> and then when I was in college I lived with a jazz bassist so we used to go to like the college like jazz amateur jazz night like every week and then I got like just absorbed into jazz players and jazz and solos and improv and solos. even got up once or twice yeah, yeah. Nice. that's solo life but like yeah when you're like you said like if your parents don't like it you kind of have to you need someone else to just hold your hand to go like just, your parents are scared okay. of sex pistols it's not Come a judgment on their music your parents just my, didn't like shani rotten yeah my best friend yeah. helena her sister worked in a record store and that's mm-hmm. where i started to hear more contemporary music but it wasn't it still wasn't pop music it still wasn't cool it still wasn't the right thing it was fucking like <laughs> regina specter and ben folds and rufus wainwright and like Martha Wainwright you know it was that kind of particular oeuvre of music as well so it was still it was different and it was brilliant but still wasn't pop music still wasn't cool and I still had nobody to talk to outside of this tiny little echo chamber I built for myself (laughs) and in suburban Dublin in the the noughties like it was a very it was a time where your taste in music was very um it was a currency and Mm. I was I ran with the alt kids, I guess you could call them now in retrospect, but like I didn't listen to Nirvana. I didn't listen to Foo Fighters. I didn't listen to any of that. I'm, I liked Soundgarden kind of. But what was your <laughs> your kind of your calling card in your social group had to be which of these metal or rock bands or or, or grunge bands that you liked? And I didn't like any of them, you know, <laughs> I was just kind of. Yeah. Anyone want to talk about Andy Williams, yeah. you know, like, no, <laughs> that's fine. No, I'm all good. Well, that's. Yeah. And that's funny because when I was a little older, I so I was homeschooled, so I didn't have <gasps> a school group to try and impress, which I think also informed my taste quite a bit. Liberation when to I, freedom. Yeah. <laughs> well, I only hung out with adults, so it was like they're much more easily impressed mm. by your musical tastes. Like if you're like, I like Billie Holiday, they're like, wow. <laughs> Whereas kids are like, who? What? 
Um, but yeah, when I was probably 15 is when I started hanging out with teenagers and going to parties. And I grew up in a very rural part of Virginia. So parties for us were field parties where you someone would set up a stage in a field and like a punk band from D.C. would come to the field and play a show <laughs> for the wow. kids in the field. Um, so that was when I was, you know, 15 or 16. And, mm. and I did go to those and thought it was cool and liked watching the punk bands. But I remember even at the time thinking like, I hope no one finds out that I never actually put on a punk rock CD in my house. <laughs> like Radiohead, I loved Radiohead. That was the closest I got to like harder stuff as far as what I actually enjoyed listening to and like would select of my own volition <laughs> in my house. Um, but yeah, I remember like there's such a culture around sort of metal or punk where it's like, you know, you're supposed to be proving that you're hardcore and that you're cool mm. and that you are mad at your parents and stuff. And I, I always wanted to prove that, but I never liked things that were loud. Like I've, I've always gravitated <laughs> towards quieter music. <laughs> the thing I found about Metal Guys, because um, as we've documented before, I was Alan McGuire on a metal forum. was a metal guy. Um, if, but metal <laughs> fans are like the nicest people in the world. They're all really gentle in real life because they get it all out of their systems yeah, on a regular yeah. basis. They're all just these very nice people with very long hair who yeah. are just incredibly gentle. Yeah. Um, so when did you start writing songs? Like, mm. Or how did you yeah. get into When did you? It was um, right around the time I started playing guitar. So I was about mm. 13. So oh, you were straight in. Yeah. Yep, straight in. Um, I had played piano as a little kid and mm. sort of thought of that as like a thing that was boring and I had to do. And then when I started playing guitar, it was much more like, oh, this is like my thing. I can do it alone in my room. No one can hear me. Um, and so right when I got a guitar and started learning chords, I also started working on songs. Um, and I remember a period of like being really frustrated. Like I remember saying to my older sister, like I like words and I write poetry and I like songs <laughs> and I like playing guitar and I just like can't put them together. <laughs> um, so there was certainly a, uh, some growing pains around that. But I'd say by the time I was 15 or 16, I had written at least one song that I liked. <laughs> mm. I find it so interesting because I find I, it never occurred to me to write a song. I've been playing guitar since I was 13 as well <clears throat> and I never tried to write a song. And I think it could be because I'm not a lyrics person. Mm. I think with lyric, when lyrics people pick up a guitar, they want to immediately say like, something <laughs> do something with it yeah exactly yeah whereas i was just happy to just like recreate song things i liked and sounds i liked but sure. like yeah it's interesting yeah yes i've always been a lyrics person i've always really wanted to know what people were saying on mm. the records that i had and i remember like when spotify came out and people started listening to spotify um i remember being frustrated like you don't have a physical thing you can look at while they're singing to figure out mm. what they're singing about like if you can't yeah. understand them um so that's always been sort of a value of mine <laughs> um and yeah like people like Sheryl Crow and Ani DeFranco were were obviously influential in that way um and I also think the fact that stuff like Lilith Fair was going on and there were a lot of women in the pop charts made it feel mm. like this is a cool way to like be a powerful mm. woman. Like I could be up on. And you can imagine song, yourself when you're young, especially into a scene, right? You can ma imagine yourself yeah. belonging somewhere. And when you see these lineups and these, like you can, it's very easy, especially as a teenager, to place yourself into that world and to like allow that to lift mm. your ambition. You know. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny because now, like i now i'm a socialist i say that i'm a socialist i'm a feminist and all that stuff but at the time like i remember being a little kid and having like a girl's rock 
t-shirt it just said girls rock and i always remember being like yeah you can't keep us down oh. <laughs> like i had this sort of attitude of like you know i'm a girl but i'm still cool and powerful and strong and that like i, I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder the whole time i think i think it's better <laughs> so, to have been a teenage feminist yeah. than to have been a teenage misogynist though you know i grew up oh, in a yeah. housing estate in dublin that was like run by lads and bands and the way yeah. myself and the girls threw each other under various buses for <laughs> the attention of these lads we were terrible to each other and, and mm. now as adults we're all kind of looking at each other going really did we really do that so so I think having a kind of it I I would have loved to have had a more clear idea of feminism as a teenager but like I simply wasn't going to extract that from Doris Day was I so um (laughs) I I wonder about I wonder I'm trying to think where you would have gotten that from from the sort of torch singers uh milieu maybe like Peggy Lee she had some a little bit she She was down you know she was gamey But I, I yeah. seemed, I wasn't able to find anything, but I'm, I'm interested in, especially with your music now, I've, I've been listening to a lot of, <laughs> creepily, I've been listening to your tunes today and they will, uh, they're <laughs> yeah. so good. I was like going through your Instagram and I was like, oh my God, this rules. Um, I find your, your vocals, <laughs> I was saying to Alan before you came on, that like your vocals have this incredible sweetness with this incredible edge to it as well. It's like, I said to Alan, it was sort of like Dolly a little bit you know oh thank you like oh but huge really it's really notable immediately i was like oh my gosh it's like dolly parton um but with that sweet there's a very particular sweetness i think that i think is really really interesting there but all that all that that slightly eerie compliment aside and also uh listeners i have i've put myself on a windowsill to get a better internet connection which appears to have worked great i'm now in a window um leaning down into my laptop but the internet connection is back uh where as as a teenager, how did you find yourself in those, in that, like, how did you find your feminism and your socialism and your sense of, your sense of justice? Like, is that, it, it is so interlaced with your art now. Um, but yeah. how did you find yourself gra- grounded in that? Because it's so interesting to, especially as somebody who's been making music since they were a teenager, like, what was that, what was that path like for you? Hmm. Um. Thank you for asking that. You know, I was I was thinking about this because I feel like um, the culture around politics and art and how they interact mm. has changed so dramatically since the era when this record came out. Like the opening verse of the opening song on the record has the line, um, her mama believed every man could be free, so her mama got high. And I feel like that's this sort of reflection on, on like 60s and 70s culture where it's like, oh, we were so foolish and naive back then and we thought that people could be free and so that's why we all got stoned all the time and I feel like that was sort of the, the take home in the 90s on what had happened yeah <laughs> it was like well we thought that but ha that was crazy of course that can't happen um and so I think that I had I've always had a strong sense of justice mm. um like <laughs> just I would train it on anything as a kid and I have lots of various memories like I remember hanging out with a friend when I was probably eight and she was like my dad said I have to take the dogs out but I'm not going to and I was like I don't care if you're arguing with your dad but you can't abuse animals <laughs> <laughs> like, that, was sort of my, that was like my my setting from from the womb I think was like I, I get very upset if I feel that anyone's being mistreated so I think um in the 90s there wasn't a very robust um cultural reflection for that kind of feeling mm. <laughs> um so i think i sort of floated around um into my late teenage years feeling like well the world's really messed up but oh well what can you do about it 
Um, and then around the time of probably the Occupy movement and the financial crisis, and then Obama's presidency actually for me was quite radicalizing because um, you know, I worked to try and get him elected and I was so excited and we all were, and oh my gosh, this guy's so amazing and he's black and he's gonna be president and fix everything. And then he really didn't fix oh, anything. No. So no. <laughs> that, was, that came as a shock to me and I think a lot of people um, in my generation. So, um, so really the last maybe 10 years have been quite radicalizing for me and also very clarifying. Like I've, I've um, read a lot more political theory and learned a lot more about the world and the history of the world and um, you know colonialism and capitalism and all these ideas that I think felt very inaccessible until recent they times. They are inaccessible. They they're entirely, they're academic yeah. concepts. My background is in cultural studies yeah. and um, I remember going through my undergrad and learning all about those things on paper, like reading like all of these texts and just very, very dense, wordy um, essays and, and books and trying to make sense of cultural theory before I had any opportunity to put it into practice, before I had any understanding yeah. of the world, before I could tilt the lens and look around me and try and apply some of what Orientalism might mean or some of like like Marxism even, do you know? And yeah. um, I had all these words and all these definitions, but I didn't have any lived experiences to, pl to apply yeah. them to. So I kind of was just like, I guess that is some stuff that some smart people sure did right. And then I moved to America. <laughs> oh, and yeah. uh, I emigrated. I, I lived there for three, I lived in the Bay Area for three years and then I came home. And um, I very quickly suddenly had this hard, sharp learning, learning curve. And it was during the Obama administration. It was a sort of between the end of his first term and then the beginning of the second. And um, mm -hmm. it was incredible to suddenly and I feel like people throw around, especially on this side of the world, uh, throw around woke as a very, as a derogatory term, which is <laughs> appalling, but to suddenly feel like you're very much awake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's, that's sort of the, the, to me, the silver lining of the pandemic is it's been a beautiful illustration of the the lived experience of sort of public versus private mm. um, enterprise and trying to handle things as a society mm. Um, in the public sector versus in the private sector. Yeah. And I think especially with the vaccine, like here, you know, we're starting to open up again because we're getting vaccinated and we're just hearing like trickling in news of like, you know, <laughs> a lot of places aren't vaccinated and you know, the US companies that made the vaccine aren't letting anyone else make it. And it's sort of like, it isn't, it isn't really making big news here, but I feel mm -hmm. like we're in this moment where I think a lot of people like you're saying, it's like we've we've the the things that used to feel very academic suddenly feel very practical, really present, yeah, very practical, yeah. yeah. So I feel like people are in, we're in a different position now culturally where it's like a little bit harder to dupe us than it would have been maybe ten years ago. For sure, <laughs> it's still not impossible. <laughs> it's interesting. The vaccine thing is so interesting because like we're not me and Al aren't unless I'll be unless you've got we've gone found one, Alan. Unless you're like related to a hospital CEO and you haven't told me <laughs> yeah. and you've gotten a cheeky one. Um, <laughs> No, nope. there's none going here at all. None. But I am, yeah. I do find myself on a very humanist level rooting for my friends who are vaccinated. Do you know? Like that's, I see pictures on my timeline every day of people with the little, little card. You know, my grandmother is double vaccinated. My fat, my dad is half vaccinated. But um, yeah. whenever I see somebody getting through to the other side who I know and care about, even though I'm aware that the way that the 
mass production of vaccines works out of the states is is tilting a certain amount of the international distribution i'm still like i'm really glad you're safe and that for me has been the ticket in 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 the pandemic is to not lose your humanity and to not lose the things that you love about other people even when you're scared out of your goddamn mind you know yeah and your dog agrees yeah poor weaver (laughs) god help her did i see on your instagram that you got a puppy recently yeah, I got a pandemic puppy. Excellent. Her name's Mochi. Mochi. What kind of puppy is <laughs> she? She's black and white. Uh, she's yeah, she's black and white, mostly black. She's quite big. Mm. Uh, like she's very big. <laughs> um, and we don't know what she is. She's probably part poodle and perhaps some kind of like Newfoundland, some other very big. Oh, dog. she's got a sneaky giant <laughs> in the bones. Yeah, sneaky giant. Exactly. Can I ask you about uh, about your cowboy boots? Because I've noticed they're in the background, and I also noticed again on your sure. Instagram some extremely powerful cowboy boot wearing, which obviously speaks <laughs> to you. the country and Western heritage of some of your works. In that, like, you've got these. I, I guess in my head, I'm all. I know we talked about Cheryl Crow's pop. I'm like, when I when I hear that in my head, I'm like, I can hear deep country in that. But I also, when yeah. we went to see Frozen, uh, I also believe that "Let It Go" is a country song, and I, that is a rock that I will it- absolutely die on. <laughs> like i i mean what is a country song part of what it comes down to is like genre is really it's a marketing their marketing idea it's a so vibe it's like, yeah. is what it is <laughs> it's an ineffable yeah. vibe yeah. <laughs> yeah but um i really miss wearing wearing elaborate yeah. shoes that's one of my favorite things about playing shows <laughs> so <laughs> i've put all my shoes on display uh in my little zoom window just so i can still get some get some joy out of them even though i haven't actually put them on now in over a year what do you miss most about <laughs> playing shows you know it really is just the feeling of being in a room with people oh. and especially of going through something simultaneously with people mm. and like it is it is really fun to be the performer because it's like you know making a group of people laugh is just it's one of the best things you can experience in your whole life and i and i think i really took it for granted before and i really miss it like i think of jokes now and i'm like i gotta wait so long before i can like see if this joke works <laughs> pop it in the back pocket <laughs> yeah and we've been doing monthly live streams through the pandemic and those have been really lovely but it is quite a different experience of performing to not get you know instant like sensory feedback mm-hmm. about whether what you're doing is connecting with people so i think i really miss that feeling of like here i am doing a thing and i can tell if it's working i can tell if it's not working <laughs> you know i have a background in spoken word so i and i'm deeply retired so retired from it i am <laughs> my, my boots are hung up on that but i do know that very specific feeling when you're listening to the way a room feels and you're on the stage and you can mm-hmm. feel how they feel with your body and you can give them mm-hmm. something and they might accept it and they might celebrate it and they might reject it and you don't know what it's terrible and scary but you know more <laughs> often than not it goes it, it goes in, in a way that lifts your art a bit you mentioned earlier on though, as a teenager mm-hmm. you wrote poetry and that, that, that i guess that moves your, its way into your lyrics but do you still write poetry yeah. aside from within a musical capacity not really and i i was in the i did a bit of slam poetry hey! as well yeah <laughs> um and yeah i think it sort of eventually migrated to my songs like i still keep a uh i always have a lyric book or several and i keep notes in them so um i think where i would have eventually integrated those into a poem now it's like they either make it into a song or they just stay in the book stay asleep. <laughs> but i do many of my songs do start with lyrical ideas still mm. um especially with sort of either a turn of phrase that I find to be really like rhythmic and musical and singable. Mm. That's often where the song starts where I'm like, oh, 
I thought of this phrase and I can imagine exactly how you would want to sing it. <laughs> and that's that's really, I think that where your work sort of has a, has a torch song or protest song uh, spirit to it, it, you can hear that. You can hear that the language came first or the emotional intent came around these words and then the music lifts it up somewhere, you know, into this point of like this tipping point, you know, there's a real energy and a real, uh, a righteous fury that for me when I was listening never felt like there is a there is a, a, a definitely a grit to it but there's not but again it's it's cut by that sweetness as well and I find that really really mm. interesting you know that there's this mm. there's so much happening with it but it's undercut with this really righteous sense of um of protest especially I get the, the mm. ones that I was the more recent bits and pieces that I was listening to anyway. Yeah. Well, and to to throw back to your earlier question about politics, I feel like um, I sort of musically came up in this tradition of people like Sheryl Crow, mm. where it was really more about like trying to write a hooky song. Yeah. <laughs> and then as I became more politically aware, um, I felt moved to try and get political messaging into my song. But I also feel like I have this first principle, which is anything you're singing should be like should feel good emotionally, should sound good auditorily. Yeah, the, you know hook, I mean? look, so, the hook is a powerful um, thing. Getting people singing, getting people saying words yeah. all together is how you get people feeling and get people connected, you know? So the hook, yeah, it's alchemy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, probably millions of protest songs that no one will ever sing because they don't feel good mm. and they don't sound good. So it's like you have to follow the first principle of music, which is make something that sounds good and feels good. Oh, that's the hardest <laughs> one as well, isn't it? Like, oh my gosh. Just just make something that feels good and sounds good. No big deal. You know, it's no Yeah. No big deal. And it. then try to like get your anti capitalist sentiments just... into it. Sure. No problem. Well, you make it sound very you make it sound incredibly easy from my end of things anyway. <laughs> um can you guys tell that I found my internet and I can actually talk to you properly now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You seem so free. I know. I'm yeah. just. Yeah. I'm sitting at a very high angle. It's 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 a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> Great. So, have you got anything else to tell us about this album before we before we send you back into the wilds of America? I mean, mostly just I really love Ireland and I <gasps> and I miss it and um, I hope I get to meet you guys in person one day. I am. Um, had I tour I've only toured there twice. Oh, only um, twice, sort of, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not like I'm not like hanging out That's there loads. all the time. But, in my seaside cottage or anything oh. but um but yeah every time i make it over there i just find um i find it to be lovely and people the people overall irish people are so much funnier and wittier and more like politically astute than americans so it just feels very pleasant to be in any pub in ireland talking to whomever oh man, i miss pubs <laughs> so much we are i feel like largely we are very politically astute as a nation and i was thinking it's a lot lately i think it's because we were like you can my favorite bit that i used to do when i was in the states was you know you could fit the island of ireland into california five times like <laughs> yeah. we really are a tiny rock off the coast of northern europe but we are also an extremely yeah. powerful ancient rock and i think that that means that means something to the people here and that the people here are aware of something and are very different yeah. because we're well, so small yeah and if yeah. someone's getting fucked over systematically then you know what someone you know fucked over in that way systematically yeah, you yeah. Know? you're one degree and separate. you're so, done mm. and you're one of the few countries in the world that has successfully had a revolution against colonialism that is true so, <laughs> was successful we are speaking to you in english and pretty, and pretty recent it was pretty recent <laughs> it was. so it's like in recent memory you guys actually threw off the uh colonial yoke so i think people are a bit more aware of what that means and what the difference is between 
you know pre-revolution and post-revolution that's a very good point <laughs> and that is amazing like that is an amazingly astute point because i guess like, 2016 <laughs> kind of came and went in a blink and that was the 100 year centenary of the of the of the rising you know so i suppose we have i, I do think again everyone's grandparents <laughs> were there literally yeah literally everyone's grandparents yeah, were there. for us yeah for us like we had a revolution technically but it was also like our revolution was like we don't want to pay taxes to you capitalists we're going to do our own <laughs> capitalism our own here capitalism. <laughs> have our own slaves so it was like a bit of a different the vibe. one thing that i felt in the states though when i was there and this is again this is going to sound incredibly ignorant but it's 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 really how i felt and we went up to portland just the once because we were all stone broke living in san francisco as you can imagine and we didn't get out of the state very much or at all mm -hmm. except for this one <laughs> ill-fated well beautifully fated but uh, we we were very ambitious trying to get to portland from san francisco in a day and a half really yeah that really didn't happen but a great time <laughs> but as we were yeah. driving there and i was looking at the map i was like it is 18 hours from oakland california to portland oregon <laughs> 18 hours and yeah. if you look at that's considered the same part of the country. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you look at the picture on the map, they just are like a hair away from one another. Yeah. You go from the west coast to the east coast of Ireland. It's two hours forty five minutes, maybe less. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's due, and some of that is due to roads being terrible. Um, it's not to do with actual, you know, distance. And when I think about the great political cataclysm, cataclysm and, and disaster disasters that America has had to face and that disenfranchised people have had to face in the States. I think of the sheer scale of the place and what that many people would look like and how many people would feel like and what it is to have a continent fighting with each other versus what we have, which yeah. is just an island, you yeah. know? <sighs> yeah, it's a big project. It, 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 is, it is a big, <laughs> beautiful big. project. We now have a dog. <laughs> Hello. Oh, Buffy, so cute. Hey, Weaver. Weaver has arrived yeah. on the one thing. <laughs> the one thing I'll just close with, though, on that note, is that I always want to say this whenever I speak to anyone who's not in the U.S. is I know it looks bad, <laughs> and like, <laughs> and I just want to say, as someone who's I've been to all the states and I've played shows in most of them, and I've been traveling uh, much of it alone as a woman wow. for fifteen years, and um, I've, I really do find most Americans to be quite. Oh lovely. yeah, for sure. And, I just want to say, like, we're we're in this crazy empire and, like, we have, you know, billions of dollars going towards making sure people will vote for Donald Trump and stuff like that. And so we have some gullible people. But I, I, I always want to say, you know, we're not we're not as bad as not we look, at so. all. No way, um, man. No way. It's the best people I've yeah, ever met in my life. Great cowboy boots. Incredibly warm. <laughs> I, I mean, I might be waxing lyrical about Irish people being sound. But Irish people are also terrible. I think no matter where you go in the whole world, you will yeah. meet both. It's just a per capita issue, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, I miss America. And I, I, often, I today, especially, I was thinking how much I missed my, um, missed my pals who live in New York. And I can't, I can't wait to get back there. So for, for every mile that you can't wait to get back to over this way, I can't wait to get back to it over your way either. Yeah. We'll have to do a house trip. Oh my God, please point. come. I live in a mountain. Like, please come. Okay. The Wi-Fi is terrible. <laughs> I love it. Okay, Carsey, please plug your stuff, your album, your Patreon, everything. Sure. Right? So, sure. so where people can find mm. you. Yeah, so uh, the new album is Love and Rage. It came out on April 30th and you can find it at carseyblanton.com. 
Oh, and I have a Patreon too. Oh, all right. Uh, we love Patreon. If you want to send me money every month, <laughs> uh, I welcome it. And I'll put all the new all the new songs on there as soon as I write them. Cool. Sarah, where can we find you? In my house, Alan. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> you can find me at Grifsky on Twitter, at Sarah Grifsky on Instagram, on my, my, my books, other words for smoking, sparing, vampires, and all good bookstores if your bookstores are open. If they're not, you can buy them on the internet. Alan, where, where can we find you? I, I'm Alan underscore McGuire everywhere. Juvenalia is Juvenalia underscore pod on Twitter, Juvenalia pod on Instagram. We have a Patreon. We have bonus episodes. We owe you bonus episodes if you are a patron. They're coming. We, we are sorry. They are. There's going to be one about the OA, probably one about uh, Evangelion. I'm making Alan watch all my weird nerd shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you to Dee McDonald for Thanks, our artwork. Dee. And thank you to Cassie at Tall Love Tales. We're Tall Tales podcast. Go listen to other Tall Tales podcasts. And thank you again, Carsey Blanton. Thank you, Carsey. So thank you for having me. Thanks a million. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.